those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Schwalbald. I'm both the uh, Minister of Music and also the pastoral assistant here at the Church of West Creek. Again, I want to wish all of you a happy Father's Day. Um, when I was young, my parents instituted a fun family tradition. Friday pizza movie night. <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, one of the movies that became sort of a family favorite for us was The Princess Bride. The 1980s, sort of a romantic adventure um, film. Uh, in the movie, there's a woman who thinks that her fiance has died, and now she's forcibly engaged to someone else. Um, but the fiance who's alive comes to her in disguise to test her to see if she really ever actually loved him, and starts teasing her a little bit. And and uh, as a result of the teasing, she says. He says, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And there's a certain realism to that, isn't there? See, the only way the world's a bed of roses is if you're lying on the thorns. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're a skeptic, we all experience broken relationships, sickness, and ultimately death. all experience broken relationships and this and that. So amidst all this pain, why would anyone be willing to suffer? Why would anyone be willing to suffer an ounce beyond what they have to for someone who lived on the earth 2,000 years ago? That's more or less the question we're facing today. Why be willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Well, I invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 12. If you're using one of the Red Church Bibles, you can find this on page 1016. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator. Well, the main subject of this text is very straightforward. If you just let your eyes scan the text, you see phrases like sharing in Christ's sufferings, being insulted for the name of Christ, suffering as a Christian, suffering according to God's will. The gist of it is someone professes faith in Christ, they start doing what Jesus tells them to do, and as a result of this newfound 
faith and lifestyle, they're insulted and persecuted. What a text for Father's Day. <laughs> but you know what? Actually, I've spoken to some of you and I've heard stories from you, maybe about speaking to your adult children, trying to tell them about Jesus, and they don't like anything to do with it, and you find yourself insulted and rejected. Now, of course, that's not unique to fathers, but it is a poignant reminder that Jesus did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword and a division to set a man against his father and the daughter against her mother. You see, what we need on Father's Day, more than feel-good stories or tips on how to be a better parent, we need to hear from the one about whom we just sang, who in all their life he tends and scares us. Well, our people brave he knows. Who is this father? And how does he relate to his children? And if I'm not his child, what can I do about that? Well, I think the main point of this passage, and I have a minute in the bulletin for you, is that when Christians suffer for the name of Christ, we must remember that the God who loves us has ordained such trials for our joy to strengthen our faith and certify our union with the risen Christ. Well, let's work through this text under three headings. First, we'll see a negative exhortation in verse 12. Next, we'll see a contrasting positive exhortation in verses 13 to 16. And third, we'll think, why are these exhortations so urgent? And then we'll get verses 17 through 19. So first, a negative exhortation. Do not be surprised when you suffer as a Christian. Now, if Peter has to say, don't be surprised, do you think maybe there's a chance his readers might be surprised when the fire in front comes? And maybe we are too, right? Imagine this, you've just become a Christian, and you're excited, and you start going to church, and at church, maybe you sing a well-intentioned old hymn that says, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, the burden of my sin rolled away, and now I am happy all the day. <laughs> Actually, life has gotten really hard since you became a Christian. Because when you told your boyfriend about what your new faith means for your bedroom practices, he storms out and starts spreading a rumor about you. Or maybe you get written up at, by HR at work because someone overheard you having a private conversation at lunch about Jesus. And you're surprised. And you think, Christian life, you wasn't supposed to be like this. My dear friend, can I ask, where did we get this idea that the Christian life was going to be easy? If, if we think this, is it maybe possible that we're listening to the world, which tells us, you know, the good life is the comfortable life? Or is it maybe possible that we've started to think about God as our grandfather who art in heaven? You know, the one who pampers us doesn't make us do any hard thing. <laughs> cedar vegetables. Friends, let's not forget we were born into a war zone where there is no neutrality. And when we surrender to God and become a Christian, we are now enemies of the world and the flesh and the devil. And these three fierce enemies are not happy at all to be protected. So is it really any wonder that Christians face trials in the world that other people don't? Well, if we're not going to be surprised by the fiery trials, there are a few things we need to know right off the bat. Verse 12. First, 
Trials are inevitable for Christians. Take a look at verse 12 with me. Peter doesn't say, don't be surprised if the trial comes. No. He says, don't be surprised when the trial comes. Remember what Jesus said the night he was betrayed? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, we might not be thrilled at the content of that teaching, but at the very least, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And also, let's remember, there's no guarantee that every moment of our Christian life is going to be a full-force press of suffering every minute of every day. So friends, if you're following Jesus faithfully, and you're not going through the ringer at the moment, praise God for that. It's a blessing. If that's your case, then let's use our, our time and our energy and our resources to support those who are going through the ringer at the moment. Perhaps you've heard stories about people in the Middle East where we as a church know people in the Middle East where sometimes it is illegal to deconvert from Islam, to become a Christian. And if you do, your family might be sundered, and you might even be killed. Now, again, we might not experience persecution to that same degree, at least not right now. But let us not forget what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Can I just ask, do the people in your life around you see you desiring to live a godly life? If not, is there maybe something that you need to stop doing? Or something you need to start doing so that they might see your good deeds and glorify God even now? Don't be surprised by trials because they're normal and they're also not pointless. They're not pointless because they come to us from the kind hand of our sovereign God to test us. See, when God tests his children, it's not the same at all as when, for example, uh, Satan tempted Eve. When Satan tempted Eve, he did that in a spirit of contempt, and he wanted her to fail, right? But when God tests his children, it's always done in a spirit of love. And that test is meant to strengthen and to certify our faith. I remember when I was about five or six, um, my dad took me out to the I couldn't swim very well at the time. So he took me out to the middle of the pool, five feet of water, held me at arm's length, and being fairly certain that I wouldn't drown, let go, started walking backwards, and what do I do? But what are you doing? I can't swim. Come back. I can't swim. I can't swim. I say as I'm frantically swimming towards him, right? So he was testing me, right? He was testing my ability to swim, giving me practice, helping me build confidence in that skill. And you know, that sort of testing, it's not so far removed from the spirit of Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Remember the story about Daniel's friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're told they have to worship an idol. They won't do it. And so they're sent to the furnace. Talk about a fiery trial, right? You can imagine them almost standing on the edge of the furnace. Maybe they start to feel the heat. Maybe they even start to sing something like, When trials come, 
should draw near to them the furnace or the fourth man, one with the appearance like a son of the gods. And then they understand he's flaring the faith worth more than gold. And here, right here in the fire, his faithfulness is told. Do we understand what a privilege it is to sing those lines? Do we understand the only reason a holy God draws near to sinners in their trials is because when God's perfect son faced the worst trial anyone will ever face, God withdrew. My dear friend, when the moment of decision comes, the only way that you and I will be willing to suffer for Jesus is if we come to trust deep down that Jesus suffered for us to bear the wrath of God for our sin that we might become his beloved children. Are you beloved by God? Like it says there in verse 12, beloved by God. Have you come to know that special saving expression of God's love that he only shows to those who cry out to him for mercy? If not, don't wait. Ask Jesus right now to save you from your sin. And if you do, the Bible promises to do something far better than being happy all the day. It promises that you'll be blessed with great cause to rejoice, both now and forever. Well, so far we've seen a negative command. Now we get a contrasting positive command. Do not be surprised, but rejoice and glorify God in that name. Now once again, if Peter has to say rejoice, uh, does it stand to reason that this might not be our instinct when we experience suffering of this kind? You know, maybe we're tempted to lick our wounds or feel sorry for ourselves um, or maybe become really bitter. When this happens, we need to remind ourselves of why it is that we became a Christian in the first place. See, we're not supposed to rejoice in suffering for its own sake. That would be pretty simplistic. Uh, no, it says right there in the text, we rejoice in so far as we share Christ's sufferings, that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, when we suffer the loss of our social status for Christ, we've got to remember, at the end of the day, that is a light and momentary affliction that's not worth comparing to the glory, the eternal weight of glory it's going to be revealed in us. And the apostles came to understand this. Remember a few months back we were in Acts 4? We saw Peter and John arrested and go before the council because they preached the gospel. In Acts 5, they're arrested again and beaten. And Luke tells us that the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were worthy, counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. See, they rejoiced because they shared in Christ's sufferings. Now, they, they didn't share in his work of atoning for sin, of course not. But getting arrested and beaten, that happened to Jesus too. And the apostles rejoiced because they knew that Christ's suffering was only the first half of the equation. Where do we see the full equation? Well, remember, we had a baptism last week, right? Rondo goes under the water symbolizing he's been buried with Christ, reunited with him in his death, dead to sin. But he doesn't stay under the water, which is a good thing. He doesn't stay down there because Jesus did not remain dead. 
did not stay in the grave, but he rose again. And Paul says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, death is not the end. And when Jesus comes again in refulgent glory, the people he's proud to call his brothers and sisters will rise to meet him in the air. And I just say, incidentally, if you are a Christian and you've never been baptized, don't you want to identify yourself with this man who conquered death on your behalf? And I ask you, would you submit to him in obedience and be baptized? Because when you do, I promise it will give you great cause to rejoice. Now notice, when Peter exhorts us to rejoice, he's not telling us to feel an emotion. Have you ever been with someone who's really upset about something, and you tell them, come on, just cheer up? It does not work. Um, but see, rejoicing doesn't start with our emotions. Emotions start with our mind. It starts with our mind as we remember what we know to be true of ourselves in Christ. It's kind of like in Psalm 42. The psalmist is sad because he's being kind of taunted for his faith. But then he reasons with himself. He says, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Have you made this your habit? When you're sinking down with sorrow, cling to Jesus and praise him for the sure hope of his salvation. You know, I've heard it said that joy is sort of like a strong buoy. You tie all kinds of weights to the buoy, but it's a strong buoy that still floats. And you know, the more we live in the Bible, the more we come to recognize all these different buoy markers of joy bobbing in the channels of Scripture. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What does he say to you next? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And Peter wants to remember that because he echoes the Beatitudes here in verse 14. Take a look. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see the logic here of how being insulted for Christ is actually not evidence that God's abandoned you. It's actually more evidence that God's spirit dwells within you. Because think, one of the things the spirit of God does is he glorifies Jesus. That's John 16. And so if we are willing to glorify Jesus, even though it means we have to suffer for it, what other explanation can there be but that the Holy Spirit is working his Christ-exalting ministry through us? And if that's not a cause to rejoice, I don't have one for you. Um, now, after verse 14, Peter gives us something almost like a parenthesis. In verse 15, see, when he tells us not to suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or meddler, it's almost like he's referring back to chapter 2. Uh, remember where he said, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? The idea here is, you maybe, you maybe find yourself in prison for a crime you've committed, or maybe you can't sleep at nights because you're just burning with hatred. Or maybe you just lost your best friend because he went behind your back and meddled in your business. 
my dear friend, if that's you, you might be a Christian who's suffering, but in this moment, you are not suffering as a Christian. There's no special blessing for that. But there is grace for that. Even when you're suffering for your own sin, God is gracious. My friend, if you deny Jesus by something you've said or done, or by something you've left unsaid or undone, then do it either day. Entrust yourself to the one who died for murderers, thieves, and elders. And leave your sin at the cross and pray for grace, not to be ashamed of looking forward. So when your next trial comes, your joy in Christ may be Well, there's actually a fairly strong break in the text when we come to verse 17. We take a look there. We see the word for tells us what's about to come is an explanation of what we've just read. So far, Peter's given us these contrasting commands. Don't be surprised. Don't rejoice. Don't be ashamed. Don't glorify God. And now in verse 17 and 18, Peter explains why it's so urgent that we follow those commands. And it has to do with God's impending judgment. Now we need to look very carefully at these verses. What Peter does, he makes an initial claim about judgment beginning at the house of God. And then he basically makes two rhetorical statements to get us to imagine basically how awful hell is. And then here's the logic. If God judges his own people, then he does then how much unspeakably worse is the judgment coming from his enemies? Now, wait a minute, if you think God judges his people, that doesn't sound right. I mean, Romans 8, isn't there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Yes, amen, and amen. If you are in Christ, you will not face the wrath of God for your sin. But you see, Peter's a man who knows the Hebrew scriptures. He's read, for example, Psalm 50, who says, Our God calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Uh, some of the commentators think that Peter may also have in mind here a passage like Malachi 3 that we read a little earlier. There, Malachi writes about the Lord's return, and he says, The Lord is like a refining fire, and he will purify the sons of Levi when we find them like gold and silver. So, in this analogy, of God are like a hunk of impure gold. God takes them, puts them into the fire, and that is the hymn says, the flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume, your gold to refine. Now here's the question, when exactly does all this purifying happen? Is it at the end of time? Well, so let's take a look again at the text, verse 17. It does not say the time will come for judgment to begin in the household of God. No, it says it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. Something's going on now in the present. One commentator uh, named Edwin Moody explains it like this. He says, The coming of the Lord in his eschatological end times judgment has as sort of a harbinger or a herald a beginning of birth pains that will purify believers. So the idea is, yes, the Lord will come again to judge the living and the dead. But even now, 
there's a foreshadowing of that coming judgment in the purifying trials that Christians undergo for the name of Jesus. Friends, are you afraid of the fire? I understand if your answer is yes, why that might be. But let's remember that not all fire is the same. You see, for the beloved in God's house, there is purifying fire now. But for those who are ashamed of Jesus, and I shudder to say, there is another fire later. It's a fire that's never quenched. And the smoke of the people's torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And if you think I'm making that up, please go home and read Mark chapter 9, Revelation 14. If you're awake and tracking with me here, I hope your thoughts <coughs> this sound really bad. What do I want to do to avoid it? Well, again, let's go to the text. Who are the people who avoid the second fire? In verse 18, they're called the righteous. And you know what's funny? The righteous, in verse 18, actually have a lot in common with the ungodly and the sinner in that same verse. The common ground is we are all sinners, right? They've all broken God's law and they deserve his wrath. But here's the difference. The so-called righteous have a righteousness that's not their own. Martin Luther, the reformer, once called this an alien righteousness. It's nothing less than the righteousness of God himself, which we can receive through faith in Christ. See, the ungodly and the sinner judgment day, these are the people who decided to act as their own attorney in the courtroom of God. They're the ones who plan to enter the courtroom and say, you know, I wasn't so bad. I, I always did my best. No, 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 we haven't always done our best. And Almighty God is not going to be fooled by that defense. But the righteous, the righteous are the ones They've arranged for the good attorney. You know, the one who's appointed for me by the court. And that, he's the good attorney. He's the one who says, don't wear that, don't wear that shriveled fig leaf of self-righteousness in the courtroom. And he takes the robe of righteousness off his own shoulders and puts it on yours. Leads you into the courtroom. And there he presents an airtight case that will never fail. He says, Your Honor, you know, my client actually did do all the things that she's accused of. But she stands faultless before you in these robes, pursuant of my perfect life and death on her behalf. Not guilty. Case dismissed. But then, instead of the judge retiring in his own chambers where you can see him again, this judge, you actually recognize him as your own father. And he comes down, and you hear him say, well done good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And all the rejoicing that you did through pain on earth, it finds its fulfillment in the blissful rejoicing in heaven that never ends. My friends, arrange for the good attorney now, because his salvation is sure. See, when verse 18 says, the righteous are scarcely saved, and that's from Proverbs 11, that doesn't mean that their salvation is shaken. No. I think D.A. Carson gets it right when he says, the righteous are scarcely saved because the door they enter through is narrow. 
members of us read. We know this story. I know we do. Have we made every effort as a church to trim the edges around this door, to remove every obstacle for people who want to enter? So when we share the good news of Jesus, can, can we strip away any unnecessary hand agendas and just give them the gospel, the whole gospel, and nothing but the gospel? And have we posted guards on the other side of this door so that when the going gets tough with suffering and people want to bolt, there's someone there to encourage them to stay on the narrow path? Maybe we can think about that person we haven't seen in that church in months. Or the person you know who, as Jesus said, has had to leave house and family and lands for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. Can we take an afternoon and remind that person of what Jesus says? That though we see the hundredfold more now and in the age to come. It's hard work and it might require sacrifice. So that's why we have to follow our master's lead. And we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, our time is just about gone. But can I tell you one more story? A story about a man who, unlike Daniel's friends, was not spared in the fire. You heard the name John Huss. John Huss was a Czech man born in 1369, about 100 years before Martin Luther. And at a time when most people assumed the man-made traditions of the church had equal authority to the Bible, God opened John Huss's eyes and he helped him to see pretty much what we believe here at West Creek, that the Bible is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. This did not go over well with the people who were profiting from those man-made traditions. And so they told John Huss, you have to recant your faith, uh, your trust in the Bible on pain of death. You have to take back your beliefs. And when John Huss did not recant, he was burned at the stake. The same thing that had happened to Polycarp about 1,400 years earlier. Friends, how are we going to stand in the fiery trial? Like John Huss, we stand on that firm foundation that's laid for our faith in his excellent word. And we remember God's promise. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. May God hold us fast to that end. Let's pray. Christians in the world.